Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. We are coming to you with our socks covered in the tear of clay season, which is fully underway. My name is Ben Rothenberg, and my dirty socked partner on the West Coast is Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Ben. I had no idea where you were going with that, that intro. That was a very strange intro. <laughs> um, one of my weirder ones, but we'll just we'll roll with it, hopefully. I like it. No, I like it. I like it. That's right. I'm trying to be poetic to do justice to the... I feel like clay brings out the worst in writers in terms of writing things like that you know it's true making people out to be bullfighters or warriors warriors exactly yeah battlers that you know everything about it is is so gladiatorial yeah gladiatorial honestly they're just playing in a sandbox yeah (laughs) i mean it's one it's one way or the other either they're playing on dirt or they're like i don't know playing on this majestic do you think that this goes back a little bit to our discussion of the masters last week really quickly Uh but do you think that like the clay season for tennis is kind of our equivalent to kind of or is it wimbledon that hushed toned like reverence wimbledon is the hushed tone thing however clay season people who like clay are like the european soccer fan equivalent yeah fans i mean it's something it can be very pretentious in how people portray their clay love oh it's the pure way i like it the european way of playing that's where the real players come from so yeah people who can't accept that they're americans and they come from the land of isner and roddick and sam (laughs) williams people who hit the ball hard and you know win right aside from clay we're gonna be talking about a bunch of other things on this show including obviously the monte carlo final which saw Rafael Nadal's streak there come to an end at the hand of Novak Djokovic. We're talking about the big prize money increase, which was announced by Wimbledon this week. Then we're going to take a couple questions from you guys and bring back our rant segment, because it's been too long since we got anything off our chest, Courtney. So much anger built up. So, so many much, thoughts. So, so much, much. This cork is going to go flying across the <laughs> basically. All right, are you ready to roll? Ready to roll. All right. So let's first talk about Monte Carlo. Rafael Nadal was on a 47, I want to say, match winning streak. Going, I might have that number off by one or two. 47 match win streak in Monte Carlo, give or take. And lost in the final Novak Djokovic. His first loss in Monte Carlo since 2003. Winning it every year since 2005. It's going for a ridiculous nine-peat there. So all good things must come to an end, I guess, Courtney. But what did you make? of the Sunday final. Were you surprised? Gosh, was I surprised? I was surprised. I would not have been surprised had Novak started the tournament 100% physically. You know, we we know that he can beat Rafa on clay. He yeah. did it, you know, whatever, twice? Yeah, back-to-back yeah, back times back, in 2011. Right, in 2011. So we know that he can do it. He can do it in the, the, the altitude of Madrid, and he can do it, you know, in Rome, where, you know, conditions are probably more similar to what we saw in Monte Carlo. In fact, that year he skipped Monte Carlo. Um, and so who knows that year if he would have played if Rafa's streak would have ended actually earlier. Yeah. Um, it's entirely possible. So the result in and of itself is not surprising in terms of Djokovic beating Rafa on clay. But 
I mean, the entire week that Novak, you know, was playing in Monte Carlo, I was in my head just berating him. Like, why are you playing here? You know, he did not look good in his first uh, two or three matches. He was clearly hampered by his ankle injury that he sustained at Davis Cup. And it just seemed to me like, what's what's the upside of playing here? I mean, you you got a, a huge lead, you know, in, in terms of ranking. Uh, you don't need to def- necessarily defend your finalist points, all these sorts of things. And then once he made the final, I was like, okay, so you've defended your finalist points and no big deal. And so it was quite the shock, I think, for him to not only beat Rafa, but to do it in straight sets. And so emphatically and to really, really take it to, to Rafa, especially in that first set. Really did. Um, I mean, was he really bageled him. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite the revelation, not just because obviously we know that Novak can play that and he play that way. And we know that he can beat Rafa on clay. But I felt and I don't know if this is how you felt, Ben, but I felt like I was watching Novak play Rafa differently than he has in the past on this surface. And that is, at least in my opinion, what makes the next, you know, month and a half really, really exciting because he was just really attacking Rafa's backhand. Rafa just couldn't get traction in the rallies at all, especially in the first set. And by Novak's own admission, he played perfect clay tennis. This was their first meeting in nearly a year. I mean, they hadn't met since the French Open last year. And before that, they had met a lot of times in the preceding 12, 16 months before that. Four straight Grand Slam finals they played against each other. And so I feel like it have been a lot of rinse repeat with their matches, but this one definitely did seem to have a different wrinkle to it. And and Djokovic did seem like he was playing to use a cliche that I don't like with you know little to lose. I mean, yeah. he went out there really swinging from the hip, really just taking it to Rafa early in points in a way that you don't think that isn't the playbook against Nadal on clay. I definitely do think that the conditions helped early because there had been a rain delay before the match, which made it wet and damp and sort of. Sodaling 09-ish against Nadal mm-hmm. a little bit and allowed you to sort of hit through him and Nadal's shots were not kicking up whatsoever mm-hmm. off the bounce and so that was big for uh, Djokovic getting everything in the strike zone early on but then he held on and uh, the ending was a little strange Nadal losing something like 11 of the last 12 points I don't entirely understand what happened at the very end there but I think it was a, a good sort of opening volley in the you know battlefield sense of that in yeah. this uh, clay season, because if it was going to be Rafa the whole way, I mean, I was going to be a little bored by that because I've seen that movie eight times already or however much. <laughs> it's, so it's good to have some intrigue here. And like 2011, when, when Djokovic was beating Nadal regularly um, or twice on clay, that was the most interesting clay season of the past, you know, six or seven. So hopefully there can be a bit of a battle for the top this time again. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the other thing as well is I think that the match was a nice reminder that this is the this is the premier rivalry in men's tennis right now. Yeah, you know, obviously we we missed out on that for almost a year because of, of Rafa's injury, and and you know we thought we might see it in Indian Wells, and then and then Novak lost in the semis. So it was just nice to see it again and to realize that this is you know this is the, that was their thirty fourth meeting. Is that right? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean that's how many times Sampras and Agassi played each other in their careers. Mm. And these two guys are in their primes. Good stat, Nguyen. Good stat. Thanks. Sometimes I'm good with numbers. <laughs> Occasionally. It's in the blood. But <laughs> sorry, I had racist. to go there. Racist. I know. Such a racist. But yeah, you know, it was just nice to see it again. And and I do find their matches to be much more... Obviously, the, the Nadal-Fetter matchup is great because of all of the different storylines going on there but at this point i think it's it's pretty safe to say that for the most part we know that that rafa does have the edge on that on that yeah. uh, rivalry and so even though it has the blockbuster appeal 
it the matches have been pretty much duds. Yeah, that one, the rivalry has peaked, and I think yeah. the other one you compare it to, which maybe you're getting to, but I'll just get there for you, I guess, is Djokovic Murray, right. which I don't think is really. I've never. I don't know any of their matches. I can look back and be like, oh, that was pretty. I enjoyed that match. Maybe yeah. like the Australia semi in twenty twelve. I was gonna say the Aussie semi was but, great, but other than that, it's been just sort of a you know grinding, unpleasant affair, and they both just seem to sort of. I think Steve Tigner has put it well. It said they seem to annoy each other rather than inspire each other to greatness and uh, with their tactics, obviously not personality-wise, I don't think. But yeah, but with Djokovic and Nadal, it's a little bit more one-note sometimes. Uh, when they get on like a hardcore, they can post just sort of baseline. But this match was definitely more intriguing tactically than a lot of the big four matches have been recently. Right, and I guess, uh, you know, one of the nice things to see, especially with respect to Rafa, who's you know, for most of his career has always been the one that's chasing down somebody. So he was always chasing down Roger and trying to figure out Roger and, and to really eclipse him, you know, to have now Djokovic be that guy who was chasing both those guys down and, and effectively has, you know, to at least be, he may not have the resume quite yet, but game wise, he is their equal, if not more so right now, that it's just nice to see Rafa try and have to figure out Novak. You yeah. know, I mean, with respect to his rivalry with with Roger, he always was able going. He was always going to be able to exploit Roger's backhand, and it was just a matter of just really kind of tightening up the rest of his game to just be able to take advantage of that mismatch. And he doesn't have that with Novak, and no. really saw that in Monte Carlo in the final. Just it reminded me of Novak uh, 2011, where you're watching him, and you're like, how do you beat this guy? If he's going to play like this, he, he's not missing. His backhand is just as strong as his forehand. And his backhand was just really neutralizing, you know, everything that, that, that Rafa was throwing at it. And I think you're right that the conditions had something to do with that because there just wasn't as much kick. But yeah. it's, 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 an, it's a really interesting matchup to me. I, I, I do enjoy it. I do. And I, I do agree that sort of any player to become interesting needs a foil, needs someone who has their number to some degree they have to battle with. I mean, seeing Nadal beat Federer at Indian Wells for, I don't know, like the 18th, 19th time. That was not interesting because we knew that he knew how to beat that game. You know, he played that video game before. He knew what the tricks were for all the levels. We get that. But to see him struggle and see other past players do it, whether it's uh, like Federer did against Nadal, but when he pretty much had been untouchable against the rest of the field, whether it's uh, Serena against Justin Ennen in the heat of their rivalry when you know Serena was cruising then this little short Belgian girl came and annoyed the crap out of her for a streak of three years and she was always losing to and seemed really enraged by that. Yeah, I think you need that to be a great player or to for us to appreciate a great player. The person needs that that constant, constant adversary there, that person who's can be loosey with the football sometimes. Yeah, I mean like for I know that for myself, Roger Federer was never as compelling as when Rafa was like about ten yards from catching up to him. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, on all surfaces. So so really for me, yes, Roger's a tremendous player. I mean, in my opinion, he is like the greatest of all time. But watching him beat up on everybody was not particularly fun. Yeah, and until... I, think, I think people feel the same way about Steffi Graf a lot too. Precisely right, yeah. So until 2008, when Rafa kind of caught up and, you know, beat him at, at, at Wimbledon in the 09, you know, beat him at the Aussie. I mean, that was, I think, when that rivalry really gelled, I think, for me. And now, I mean, with Novak, uh, you know, in 2011, when he did what he did, beating Rafa six straight times in finals throughout the year um, on every surface, that was what, that was the stat of, 20, of 2011 to me. 
that made me believe that like Novak was not just a really good tennis player who had, you know, fits of, of greatness, but fits of average humanness. But I was like, no, this is, this guy's going to go down as one of the greatest players of all time. And, um, you know, it, we'll see what, how the next few months um, translate, because in order to do that, he really does have to win the French <laughs> oh, that's, that's, <laughs> at that's, some point. <laughs> that's becoming the criteria nowadays. I mean, people have become so good on all surfaces. Career slam is a box you kind of have to check at this point, fair or unfair, because um, a lot of people in the past just never did it. And now it's almost like, why haven't you career slammed, you know? Right, exactly. With Maria Sharapova, like, what about Clay? She's like, <laughs> she's like this awkward giraffe person out there, you know? And they'd be like, oh, well, Clay. And she's like, I'm never going to win Clay. She was sort of thinking. And then she did. So, mm-hmm. roast the occasion. So, Djokovic, I think, is a much smaller mountain to climb than Sharapova when it comes to Clay's success. Obviously, he's already won a couple Masters on the surface and a bunch of other titles. And it seems like it'll suit him well. Don't, I mean, how do you come down on this? Um, is it just a matter of time before Novak wins the French? Yeah, absolutely. Novak will win yeah. the French. If he stays, unless he has some really career-changing injury, if he plays right. the French healthy four more times, he'll win one of those for sure. Agreed. At least. At least yeah. one of those. Let's talk about Rafa a little bit, though. We've talked mostly about Novak. Um, we got a question on our Twitter. Um, we asked for questions, and people people deliver. And we got a question about the last time Rafa lost from Ang, for all surfaces, who asks us, uh, favorite last time Rafa lost in Monte Carlo factoid, and um, have people lost perspective of Rafa's comeback with his success during it? So answer that question, which either order you prefer according. Um, I don't think that him losing in Monte Carlo tarnishes what he's done this season at all. It's not like he lost to, you know... I don't know, Juan Monaco in the second round. No. Um, you know, he he lost to the second best guy that's, on the surface. By the way, that seemed, like a, to before. that seemed like a shot at Gulbis talking about losing to Monaco <laughs> in the second round. I'm just going to say, that was an incredible implosion. That was a great match. I'm so was, happy he's around. That was just, it was epic. It was just so fun to watch I him. I feel like just he's burning unravel. so bright that he can't keep this up. That was the thing. <laughs> I feel like he's, you know, burning the candle at both ends, and it's uh, it's going to end ugly, but it will end spectacularly, I'm sure. But we yeah, may but never see gotta, him again. Yeah, you got to watch it. Oh, you got to yeah. watch every single match he oh, plays. Yeah. And, you know, from, from the ATP perspective, I love players like that because just for me personally, it is harder to find those players than, in my opinion, than you have on the WTA. So in terms of players who, regardless of what they're doing, I'm going to tune in. To whatever match they play, yeah, Golbus is one definitely one of those guys. Yeah. So, so what, I, nice. what, what I think Ang is asking in this question is, have people lost perspective of Rafa comeback? I guess he's saying the way I'm reading that is, are people being too hard on him? Considering I, I, he lost, and I said I was very surprised that he lost, and someone tweeted me, but it's only his fifth tournament back. It's like ugh, that's a lot of tournaments at this point. A, B, he's on clay where he at a tournament where he hadn't lost since 2003. And, you know, he already won Indian Wells, beating, like, three top tenors en route. I think that we, I don't think it's unfair to hold Rafa normal expectations now. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think in my report card, I gave him, like, a C- minus or something like that And I uh, for SI. And I haven't checked the comments because generally I just don't check comments. Smart, um, smart. Because I know how the internet works. Yep. Um, and very rarely do people go into comments and say, that's a really interesting point. Let's discuss this. Yeah, no. the amount of time, sidebar, <laughs> the amount of times I'm like, I'm really glad I read my comment, that comments on my article, it's low. Yes, it's just not, yeah. So I haven't read the comments, but I knew that when I was writing it, because it was how I felt, because the way that I think about it is, a C means average. 
a B is above average and A is two notches above average and back down the grade scale. So like for Rafa, a C minus is probably actually a bit generous to say that you lost the final of Monte Carlo, you know, for the first time in, you know, in, in 10 years. You're measured against expectations. That's the same right. reason why Federer goes out and cries when he loses the Grand Slam final. I mean, right. because he's holding himself to the expectation of I should win this. Right. But people yeah. get really, it's like one of the things that people get really annoyed with in my report card that I've known in the past is they're like, oh, well, this player, you know, Roger made the finals. How can you give him a B minus? Like, that's a really good week. I'm like, not for Roger if he didn't win it. Like, you know, depending on what his performance was, you know, it can vary. But yeah, so I gave Rafa a C minus. And because, yeah, it's not, I'm not going to necessarily pat Rafa on the back for making the finals of Monte Carlo. And beating Sangha, I guess, was his toughest opponent. Yeah, Sangha, who did play well this week, but yeah. He did. He did. I I liked how, how well uh, Joe played. But yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, Rafa's better than that. Like, to be like to give him a pat on the back is to be... It's patronizing. A, it's very patronizing. And, and, and maybe and, and, Rafa and it, feels that way, but like... But that's not how... I mean, that's Rafa's that's reality. own... <laughs> no one needs to... Telling us to look at the world through Rafa's lenses would, in terms of his own expectation, to be not professional of us honestly because we know he's so much better um, we know the results for how he sees things i mean uncle tony has said a lot of things during this uh comeback absence says a lot of things he says a lot of things a lot of he says a lot of things and one of the things he said at the beginning of the week was that absolutely rafa was not the favorite to win monte carlo oh please yeah please please with you uncle tony honestly <laughs> who do you think you're talking to here so and, and granted he was vindicated but <laughs> It was just, you have to, you know, grade on a curve and grade based on expectations. And those are the right. expectations that most players hold themselves to, privately, if not publicly. Right. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, let's, I'll just say, it's a disappointing result. Yeah, totally. I don't see how anybody can argue that. It's the first real, I think the Zabios loss, I was, I think was disappointing. Um, and this was disappointing. But other than that, it's been all sunshine, lollipops on the comeback for Rafa. So I think he is definitely, overall comeback rate is still somewhere for me i don't do grades as much as you do but in the b plus a minus range probably yeah, closer would, to a minus yeah i'd say closer to a minus yeah exactly so he's doing fine he will yeah. totally pass the semester yes and then he'll get into the college of his choice or whatever the end goal is here right um and then the second part of that question from ang was asking about the favorite last time rafa lost to monte carlo factoid i'm you big into for... these do you have one sure Okay. I mean, mine's probably like really boring compared to yours. Well, why, don't you, like, why don't you go first? So yours isn't underwhelming. Yes, because mine's super like lame. But I just think that it's funny to think that the last time Rafa lost in Monte Carlo, Maria Sharapova was not a Grand Slam winner. Yeah. She didn't win Wimbledon until 2004. So um, it just feels like that's a really long time ago to me it just feels like maria's been around forever so to just kind of use that for me personally as a measuring stick it's that's that's ages ago that share i mean that's like a you know 2004 bs before before share or bp before pova yeah it's a long time it's a long long time uh my statistic is a little bit different obviously he last lost in monte carlo in april 2003 and did you know that in may 2003 Ruben Stuttered beat out Clay Aiken to win American Idol season two. Ew. What are either of those two dudes doing now? Not a whole lot. But yeah. think of like how long ago that was, like in terms it's of like ago. culturally. That was a big thing when it happened for some reason. And it was over a decade ago. It was over a decade ago last time he lost, basically. That's weird. So good run, Rafa. 
tip of the tip of the uh, tip of the cap. Of the cap. I mean, that's. I don't think you're you're gonna. I, I don't think that I will see that sort of domination at a tournament in my lifetime ever again. No, unless it's like Rafa winning Barcelona like nine times. But <laughs> you know, but even then, I don't think it would be straight times because he skipped like two years ago or something like that. Two three years ago. Now, Whichever if, year Ferrer won. <laughs> now, if he doesn't win Barcelona, Courtney, this week, we're recording this early Barcelona week. If he doesn't win Barcelona, is there reason to start to sweat a little bit in Rafa land? Mm, not necessarily, because I think that even if he had won Monte Carlo and then lost in Barcelona, it would be kind of a bit of a shrug. And I don't, I mean, I think that Monte Carlo is definitely disappointing. I think it was a subpar performance by Rafa in the final, but... I'd still say like losing to Novak there, you can kind of, you can do worse than losing to Novak. Yeah, you could do, you can rationalize that a little bit easier than losing to anybody that's in that field in Barcelona. So you're saying that it would be with reason to worry if he lost in Barcelona. Well, I'm just saying that like you couldn't compound the results in my opinion. Okay. So in other words, like if, if he loses in Barcelona, I don't think that when I look at it, I say, oh, whoa, he lost in the final Monte Carlo and now he lost in the fourth round of Barcelona that that's like a really big deal. If to the extent that it's a big deal, it would be he lost to a nobody in Barcelona. Yeah. I don't think I, I, I don't necessarily think of it as a trend that it would be something to panic about. If anything, it, you would panic just because he lost to a nobody. Because there are but, no signs of panic so far. So yeah. Barcelona be the first. I gotcha. Yeah, exactly. I gotcha. One of the bigger news items this week was about the decision by the all England lawn tennis club. To, uh, to increase prize money at Wimbledon, which makes it the fourth Grand Slam to announce a prize money increase. Wimbledon did the biggest percentage bump uh, in one year of all of them, who is upping their prize money by 6.5 million pounds to a total of 22.6 million pounds. Do people still say pound sterling? I kind of like that phrase. I do like pound sterling. I say pound sterling. I don't even know if that's still applicable. <laughs> 22.6 million pounds sterling or 34.4 million US dollars, which is a 40% pay increase over 2012. Biggest increases percentage-wise go to the early round losers to make it a viable sport. I'm basically paraphrasing Chris Clary's story on this as I read. That makes all the slams have now increased prize money. Uh, Australian Open was up 15% to 31 million. They were the first to move on this. Then came the US Open, who moved up 31% to 33.6 million. Then the French said, eh, whatever, and made a smaller increase of 16% to $28.7 million, and then Wimbledon just made their move today. We haven't really talked that much about the prize money increases as they've been rolling out, but it seemed like now that they're all done, this would be a good time to talk about it. Courtney, what do you... There's a lot of ways to look at this. Basically, what do you make of this phenomenon? Of this? It's all happened very recently. What do you make? Yeah. Of, what do you make of this very quick, huge win by the players? I don't think there's any other way to phrase it. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, congrats to the players. I mean, obviously, I mean, that's that's great. That's great that they were able to negotiate it and be able to 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 get these these increases. I think that that kind of goes without being said. I think we all recognize that 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 the players are what drive this sport, and if they're they're the reason why people tune in. Um, they're the reason why um, television deals, mega television deals are struck, which is where a lot of the money comes from. You know, that makes sense. Like the players should get paid. That being said, <laughs> two things that kind of struck me, especially today once Wimbledon announced its money increase. Did like all the slams just like stumble upon money? Yeah. Like this is a ridiculous amount of money that they're increasing by. Like, you know, like I would have understood if, if, the slams kind of came back and said, you know what, can we do like kind of more close to like 
a five to 10% increase every year for the next like blah, blah, blah years, because you're asking for some capital outlay that we were not necessarily expecting to have to pay. Honestly, and, it's like it's like Sue Barker did the laundry and found <laughs> 6.5 million pounds in her pocket. It's incredible. And I guess I understand a little bit more with the All England Club because holy shit, they're rich. And I'm sure that they're just sitting, sitting on a, just a load of cash and, you know, waited for everybody to make their move. And then they're like, yeah, so then now we're going to pay more than everybody else because we're Wimbledon and we want to be, you know, craft this image of being the best and branding and all that sort of stuff. But even for the USTA and Tennis Australia and the FFT, I mean, FFT less so because seriously, chump change. Like you guys, especially for a tournament that starts on Sunday, yeah, you ha- you you pay the least. Like that's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. But anyways, but yeah, for like the USTA and, and Tennis Australia, like I'm just shocked that they were able to find this money. And they came up with it. They made up this money. I mean, who knows? Yeah. We don't know their books. We don't know how this is going to hurt them. I mean, I know that I've heard people say, you know, they know that the cuts are going to have to come from somewhere. And so the cuts may come more on the on sort of our side of the fence, I guess, that they're going to cut people right. who work in communications or PR or people who work in outreach or people who do advertising, people who write for the websites for these tournaments. If they're going to cut coaching programs. I mean, cuts are going to have to come because they really, people do not just have, I assume, especially those two, Tennis Australia and USCA especially, did not just have vaults of millions of dollars sitting around waiting for someone to ask them to enter the code. It didn't happen. And I, my sort of thought with this, and I've talked to players and people who are sort of more on a executive level in the sport about this, is that I just don't think it was necessary. I don't think they need to bend over quite this far for the players because I do not think the players were going to boycott a Grand Slam. I would have completely called their bluff on it. I would have too. Yeah, I mean, like, if it happened, then you do it, like, at the 11th hour. But right. this, before there was any warning sign, I mean, what are the odds that any of the top four are going to boycott Wimbledon? Right, really? you, have these, you have these players, especially when you talk about the men, okay? You're talking about Roger, you're talking about Rafa, you're talking about Novak, you're talking about Andy. These are four guys who are chasing history. Yeah. They're not playing for money. You don't play Wimbledon for money. Wimbledon especially. Right. Like, people play the, the Olympics is another example the most prestigious title in sports for most sports. No prize money there. Right. You don't do it for that. You do it because of the honor, because it gives you fulfillment, and it's a, you know, a clear um, a laurel that you win in the sport. Right. But, they're, but they're, chasing, they're chasing history. Do you really think that Andy Murray was going to boycott a slam? No. <laughs> like, there was no way that was going to happen. And to the extent that Roger, if, and this is all speculation because I haven't, like, talked to Roger um, this week. Um, just kidding. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Just kidding. Uh-oh. Just kidding. What Uh-oh. happened in Portland, Courtney? Uh, yeah, it was a big secret meetup. But, yeah, I mean, like, was Roger really genuinely threatening to boycott a slam? I don't. I don't. I, I just don't, really. I really don't. Yeah. And yeah, so the only reason you cave is out of goodwill because you don't want to like go back to the greatest player to ever play the game and be like, oh, yeah, well, I'm calling your bluff. Do it. We don't need you. Like those are the things that you kind of good, effectively need to say and you'd piss off this guy and yada, yada, yada. But I've been watching a lot of 30 Rock lately and I've seen a few episodes where Jack Donaghy is negotiating <laughs> and he would never have done this. Jack would never. Jack, Jack Donaghy never. would never. He would never. I mean, making a giving a 40% pay increase of 6.5 million pounds sterling out of goodwill. It's just terrible business sense. Right. Why? 
So Why? yeah, so there's there's that aspect. And of I it. don't and I don't think that it makes the events more prestigious to do it. That's what we were saying before. I don't know that this raises the profile of tennis or the Grand Slams at all. I don't well, think people really is... look at tennis on TV and then go Google the prize money involved. I don't think that happens. There's nobody who sees these prize increase money increases come through that isn't necessarily like a hardcore tennis fan that's like, oh, well, in that case, like Wimbledon must be really important. <laughs> I should pay attention to it as yeah. a sporting event. Bullshit. And this is where like my... I don't know if it's my paranoia. I don't know, like, whatever this is coming from. But I just don't understand how these prize increases are sustainable. The bottom line is that the reason why tennis is as popular as it is now, which in the grand scheme of things, it's not that popular anyway. Okay, let's be real. In the grand scheme of, like, world sport, it's not as big as sometimes we think or we would hope that it would be. Especially in American sport. Especially within American sport. And the reason why it is as big as it is is because of Roger Federer. Rafael Nadal, and you can pretty much draw the line there. And uh, Serena Williams, I think. Yeah. No, no, no. I know. I was talking men first. Okay. And then for the women, it would be Serena and in some part Maria. Yeah, lesser part. Lesser part for Sharapova for sure. Right, for sure. But and and all and but also I think a big part of it is that big reason it's big is that people play it, and that may be threatened on some level if the USTA is taking money out of you know grassroots programs. Precisely so, right. I don't. I don't know if they're shooting themselves yeah, in the foot. Exactly. How much is USTA shooting itself in the foot in terms of like developing American tennis? And it's like a it's a cyclical thing because if you aren't developing interest in the sport on a grassroots level, then no one in America cares about tennis. Right. And the TV contracts that are related to the U.S. Open are going to shrink when Serena is gone. When Venus is gone, like why would ESPN shell out so much money for the rights to show? Or CBS to show the U.S. Open. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Because we don't have Andy Roddick either. Nope. And like all the top American guys don't want to be the top American guys. It's a foreign sport at that point. It's a foreign sport. And it's just not going to work because the U.S. Open doesn't have the branding that the Masters have. The, like Augusta National, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah, we don't really. I mean, but even then you have Tiger. Yeah. Okay. So all of these pay increases are happening across the board. And yet it's the popularity of tennis is based on this aging group that are not going to be here in five years. And I, was, I sent a tweet about this today. I think I just think we could go more in depth on the show. But I, don't, I just think that prize money isn't necessarily like by round winning incremental prize money at the big events. Isn't necessarily the way to pay back players like Federer and Serena and Nadal for their support of the game. I mean, I don't think that's as direct as it could be. If Federer, you've been to Cincinnati, you see how many RF hats there are in Cincinnati. It's crazy. Like one in two people there is a Federer fan. And if Federer loses first round for some reason in Cincinnati, which could happen, um, or second round with a bye, um, then he gets like almost no money out of that event. And how is that fair to him? Because he's the one who put butts in the seats for the entire tournament. So I feel like there could be some way of having the tours or the, and especially the slams and the federations contribute money to like a general prize pool that got allocated in more of a salary fashion. And I know that I, well, part of what I like about tennis is um, the sink or swim nature of it. And you earn your keep, you get money for winning. I like that, right. obviously. So eat, I don't want to, I don't want to destroy that completely. Exactly. Eat right. what you kill. And if you don't, you starve and you have to quit. But just on some level, like especially with the first round loser stuff, I don't like the optics of someone getting $31,000 for losing a match, showing up and losing. 
Why not? Why, and people say, oh, but it's their reward for making their ranking top 100. Okay, then give them more money at the smaller tournaments where they're actually earning those points. Make more 100k challengers or have the challengers have bigger prize pools. Just some way to smooth it out because that part just seems yeah. lumpy to me. I just, to me, it's just the big red flag is just the unsustainability of something like this. This is this is this is my fear because it's not something like Indian Wells where Indian Wells can keep doing what it wants to do because it has Larry Ellison. Yeah. And so long as Larry Ellison is there and is willing to bankroll, it doesn't freaking matter if Roger's there, except unless unless the fact that there aren't any stars makes Larry Ellison be like, I don't want to sponsor this tournament anymore. That's a problem. No, but slams do have TV deals and stuff that will bankroll them and it has more. They, they have, will, they have but money. those but those TV deals go up for renegotiation. This is what I'm saying is that there will come a point in the next five to seven years where the stars that we have that are marquee names are not there anymore. And what are you selling? Yeah. And the smart Who, tournaments is, have planned around that. I mean, we both noted when London recently re-upped for the World Tour Finals. Yeah. They seemed to basically be doing it until when they thought Federer was going to stop coming. And that's smart. Yeah, very smart. That totally makes sense, you know? But there's just going to come a point where that's just not going to happen. And to see, and it's especially hard to, again, see kind of, because you have all this money and like millions and millions being pumped into the slams, and it's great, but when you see like the WTA still doesn't have a title sponsor, nope. and they're suffering, I mean, not suffering, but they're experiencing number, you know, um, um, cash flow issues, not cash flow issues, I don't want to exaggerate it like that, but there's, you know, there's money issues. They're not booming. They're not booming. You know, you and I both know this within kind of like the tennis coverage part of things. There's very little money. Oh, yeah. In advertising for this, you know, if this sport were as big as it was, it you wouldn't have that as much. You would have like more tennis beat writers and you, you really don't. A lot of the t- best tennis writers are ones like a Chris Clary who doesn't just write about tennis. He writes about a bunch of different sports because tennis alone will not sustain you. Yeah. So the, that's kind of what I'm more concerned about on the and down the road. And once these these slams offer this type of money, can they contract? I don't think you can. That's where you once get you strike, offer the money. That's when you're actually you going to get a strike. Exactly when you, when when you, you offer when you promise something and take it away. Exactly. So why exactly. promise it? Basically, exactly. why yeah. put yourself out there? Like if all of these increases instead of being double-digit percentage increases had each been somewhere between, like, 7 and 9%. Players would have been fine. I think that would have been plenty to guarantee them showing up. I don't think it had to be this over the top and this big a move. It's a bit of a... You're, like, at an auction, and they ask for the next bid to be 150, and you bid, you know, 20,000. Right. It's just... it's I don't know. I just... I'm worried that, you know, of, of just what the strain that it will put on the sport, not now, not next year, not the year after that, but maybe starting the year after that. Because you can't start shrinking prize money. Because you, you you really can't. I mean, inflation is going to keep going up or whatever. Obviously, money will seems to naturally grow, and sports naturally grow and get bigger. But you're just jumping over a whole lot of stair steps at once and really putting yourself under a lot more pressure than was necessary for as far as you can tell. Right, exactly. Without not a lot of, at least as of this point, you know, without a lot of stuff, a lot of marquee talent in the pipeline. Yeah. No, so I mean, you know, people... you'll, you'll have people who win slams. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Milos Raonic will probably win a slam or two. I was about to know? name that name. Like, can you imagine how yeah. excited Milos Raonic is about this? How excited Dimitrov is about this? Yeah. I mean, this is money and women too, like Madison Keys. I mean, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a huge day for them. You know, if they get, um, that's really who it's affecting because these are incremental increases every year. 
for most of them. I don't know if Wimbledon has that sort of long-range thing, but the U.S. Open definitely talked about that. That's big, and it's uh, good for them, and they're clearly the winners here. And But when there's it's capitalism, when there are winners, there's losers somewhere. Yep. So it's just going to be interesting to see who is the losers and how soon they figure out that they've lost. Right. And and Steve Tigner actually has a really good piece up on tennis.com yeah. that everybody should read about, you know, what about the fans? Yeah. What what do these prize money increases, what effect do they have on fans? And, and Wimbledon came out and said that they weren't going to be raising ticket prices, which is great news. And I think fans, I think fans have realized that in this. I, I don't I haven't seen fan rejoicing over this. You know, right. um, I think people realize this is money that, uh, from the writer's perspective, I mean, San- Sandy Harwood wrote a story about this on Tennis Shorts, just sort of a, a little bit of a complaint about it. Other fans, I mean, this is not money that we're getting, obviously, right. uh, as fans or as writers or as auxiliary people who participate in the sport and support the sport on some level, but don't get prize money, obviously. We don't, we don't know how it affects us, so... It'll be interesting right. to see if it makes a difference or if it's just something that winds up not being as big a deal as uh, as it was made out to be. Because who yeah. knows? I mean, I hope I hope that it, it all works out well. I just think in five years we should revisit this discussion and see whether or not our fears and concerns have come true. Because I just don't know how you can just kind of pump money in. Where is that money coming from? Exactly. And I think Wimbledon is a separate beast because it, it is bankrolled completely differently than the other because it doesn't rely on federation. Yeah. Organization. Now that, now that said, one thing that Wimbledon did do in this move, which I don't think the other slams did as explicitly, which I really like, is um, upping quality money. Yes. Those are the people who need the money. Australia has like a travel stipend they gave all the players, and other slams get per diems and stuff, and other tournaments get per diems, but that's where the money is actually needed. That's where you want the sport to be a more, have more competitive integrity. You need to have people who are, and I think Steve talked about this too in his story, players who are ranked 200 who don't have to hold their shoes together with duct tape, you know? Right. You need to have that. Because those guys are going to be potentially playing people in the first round of a slam. And he right. want not to be embarrassing. So that that's good. But the rest of it, I just, I'm sort of, they're driving very fast and it makes me nervous in the passenger seat. <laughs> that's a perfect analogy. The other event that was this last weekend was Fed Cup, Federation Cup as it used to be called. Um, Russia came back to beat Slovakia in what was a needlessly dramatic tie for the Russians going down 0-2 early to a much weaker team. And they came back and went in Moscow, and they booked a spot in the final against the Italians, who outlasted the two-time defending champion Czech Republic, much to Lucy Shafashvah's dismay. Uh, sad Lucy. Um, Petra lost the first match to Vinci, and then sort of remembered who she was midway through her second match against Irani, and close it out like two in love in the final two sets but yeah but the but the ties that at least that i know the tie that i watched most closely was not that closely honestly because it wasn't super compelling was the usa sweden tie um which saw sloan stevens um lose yet another match first first uh rubber to sophia arvidsson then serena came in and won two singles matches and then venus replaced sloan won the third point for the usa and clinched them the win we got a question about benchmates during this tie, Serena and Sloan. They've been asked about each other a lot. And so Tony, TJCO5, asks us, lots of talk, re Serena Sloan, earlier this year, made me wonder, in solo sports, how does the veteran rookie dynamic evolve? Uh, he adds, it seems like fans and media push for either a mentor or rival relationship. Do you sense this at all? Does it differ more in team sports? First of all, I think it absolutely is different in team sports. I mean... You have a grizzled old veteran, you know, rookie 
together on a baseball team or basketball team or whatever else. And they should be, you know, his success is your success to some degree, helping the team win. Serena and Sloan play against each other twice already this year. So I think there's something inherently more adversarial about that. But I, I don't know. What, what's your what's your take on the general broad rush of youngins and veterans coming together on the tour and how Serena and Sloan particularly have worked it out? I don't necessarily think that it's, it's so different between team sports and uh, solo sports. I think that the issue is not about veteran and young Paduan. I think uh-huh. it's actually more about having two stars who are competing for the spotlight. And whenever that happens in whatever context – there is your everyone from fan to pundit to even within their own camps and themselves, this knee jerk reaction to compare and contrast within tennis. Obviously we see that a lot, you know, in kind of recent history, you have the Belgians, you have, um, you know, Yelena and, and Anna. Now we have the Serena Sloan thing because Sloan does kind of have that star quality. And she's getting next so, big thing hard. Exactly. And so there's a lot of, obviously, and there's other undertones there as well as to why those comparisons are being made that are less legitimate. But I think because, I, I don't know, I think of, of team sports and I think of like Kobe and Shaq, that was that never worked out really well. And there was a lot of kind of like team Kobe, yeah. team Shaq. That's when they a were clash on the of egos, team. which is can be on some level what is happening to a degree with Serena and Sloan, if you read it that that's way. What I, and that's what I mean is like when you have stars. Yeah who are competing for the spotlight, who kind of buy their own hype, who feel like they deserve to be the primary, the alpha. Um, When you have two alphas battling it out, that kind of, whether or not they're actually alpha personalities, like I don't think Ivanovich was an alpha compared to Yelena. I don't think Kleisters was compared to uh, Justine as much, but you still are going to kind of have that um, desire to, to compare them. And I think that with Sloan and Serena, it's been very interesting to see initially that everybody really wanted to do this whole mentor thing, right? Like every that, that was really the, the story that was pushed. And I think that we talked about it quite a bit on this podcast after the Australian Open. Yeah. That that was the story everybody wanted to tell. And it just really wasn't based in fact. Yep. Anybody that was actually within tennis in kind of a beat writer kind of way knew that that wasn't the story to tell. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, there but, wasn't, but there wasn't seemed... nothing there. I mean, they did, you know, get along at Fed Cup and stuff. But, I mean, sure. it was... Hate people trying to make a narrative and running with it. Yeah, but that's the thing is like everybody wants everything, you know, within sports writing, everybody wants things to be black and white. That's why you have kind of your instinct to lionize, uh, you know, athletes or else, you know, completely throw them under the bus. Like there's no nuance. Yeah. No one wants nuance. And so it's like, oh, well, they're chummy chummy. So they must be good, really good friends. And there was this one quote one time where Sloan said this and Serena said that. And so that's what we're going to go with. And there's no recognition of kind of, well, yeah, they can say all those things and they can be friendly. Nobody's saying these two hate each other. But then they can suddenly get so disrespectful. It's so disrespectful. And they can, you know, sort of, I mean, when Serena lost, this, I mean, I don't know. It, things change in Australia for sure. Both matches, the Brisbane yeah. match and the Australia match. I mean, they famously, I don't know how many people picked up on this, but they did famously unfollow each other on Twitter at some point during all of that with the losing and the vague tweets about each other and stuff that is one reading of it. It's just, I, there's more, you know, there. And they did seem like they're getting along very well at Fed Cup when they were shown on the bench together, which was rare. But they were, you know, giggling together and sort of, you know, touching each other's arms and stuff that made it look like they were but, fairly but chill. But can I, can I just add this, though? Yeah. You and I were both there in Istanbul last year during the draw ceremony where we saw Serena and Maria giggling and laughing and seemingly 
having an awesome time together. I don't think either of us saw that and thought like, oh yeah, they're totally like besties now. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. A little bit, you yeah. know? I and mean, I think that that's the thing is, is that I think I've seen this with Serena, especially as she's gotten older. She's been much more magnanimous and complimentary of rivals than she was before. Yeah. And so not I think- Not a bad word to that, say about Vika. Right, not a bad word to say about Vika. Nothing but good things to say about Caroline. Like, and I think that generally with Serena, um, my sense is that when she does not feel you are actually a threat, she is quite kind to you. And right now, Sloane is not a threat. <laughs> like, based off of, like, what Sloane has done since the Australian Open. Sloane is way and less of a threat now, now than she than was she two was. months ago. Yeah, totally. Precisely right. Um, and so she's way more inclined to be like, hey, chum chum, you know, and she, like she said, nothing. You know, she's had nothing but good things to say about Maria, you know, over the last like few years. And, you know, and part of that's maturity and understanding that it does, you no good to like just but, you know, to, to take pot shots at people. But, but at the she, same but time, she like never once softened on Jesse Nennon. Never, never once. Never. Never once. Because she was and always threatened by her. Always. And we saw this again, like going back to our discussion, I think a couple of weeks ago about the Venus and Serena documentary that you and I were both saying our favorite scene was the one where she's running, where yep. Serena's running on the treadmill and talking to Sasha after she beat um, Azarenka. Azarenka at the US Open and basically saying like, these girls fucking hate me. They want to destroy me. They, play, you know, and so her, she knows, you know, like she senses it. She knows how much like, I don't know, like she, she knows how much these players want to knock her off her pedestal. So when it comes to Sloan and then on top of all that, like being asked about each other all the time, you get kind of sick of it to the point where you you start to kind of act a bit more dismissive about those comparisons than you may have when the comparisons were made initially. So I don't know. Yeah, we'll I, see. I think I think it's interesting to see this. They have not. I don't think assuming that Sloan can keep herself relevant in the game um, because she's slipping right now. But I assume that she'll turn it around. At least somewhat. If, assuming that she can get herself into more of uh, these matches, I'm assuming Serena stays healthy. I mean, this is not—we have not heard the last of this rivalry. I think it is fair to call it a rivalry at this point. It's a budding rivalry, but it's not—it's not nothing. There's something right. there, so I think that's good for WTA intrigue and drama. And who doesn't like that, Courtney? Exactly. Svenja Mastro Berardi asks us i've got a question what is the weirdest question or questions you've ever heard in press i will say the one that jumps to my mind first is the one at the u.s open last year when sam stoser was doing her opening press conference and someone asked her why she was named sam and said there's not a lot of you don't meet a lot of sams on the tour and she was just like oh yeah I just could not think what story this person was possibly writing to lead to that question. I don't know. Was it a, an American journal? It seemed American, yeah, but it seemed like a definitely not tennis person. That's weird. It was strange. Sam was fine with it. It wasn't an offensive question. Yeah, it was. It was strange. I'm sure some of yours were have been strange. I mean, I've asked some weird. I've asked some out there questions. I've asked. I asked Angelique Kerber if she'd ever heard of the Care Bears. Yes. And she had. I do recall that. <laughs> FYI. Yeah. You were... FYI, she hadn't. No, which I was disappointed by. So I wanted to like. I looked up like the German name for it because I had a different name in German. It was like the, God, I don't know, I can try to pronounce it, like the Gluckweltbarensch or something. And I was going to try to say that at the next press conference. Didn't do it. Um, so Horrible. I feel like she should embrace the Care Bear thing. I feel like she needs some sort of branding hook and that could have been it for her. You should ask her about the do the don't care side of things. That's maybe, that's, maybe it cuts a little cl too close to her, to her essence. I don't know. I kind of feel like you don't want to make a player self-aware about that. You know what I mean? I suppose so. Yeah. 
So the most awkward question that I've ever heard asked and had to sit through the awkwardness of it all was at the Australian Open last year when, and you were in the press conference, I believe, too, um, for this one, Ben, when Martina Navratilova oh, yeah. He, yeah, gave a press conference in the middle of it. And during that time, around 20, uh, January 2012, was the big controversy um, regarding Margaret Court's comments about gay marriage and things like that. So there had been this whole campaign to boycott Margaret Court Arena. Rainbows over Margaret Court Arena. Rainbow, exactly, all that sort of stuff. But anyways... The final question to Martina's press conference um, was an Italian was the, question. Was an Italian question, and I will just quote it verbatim. Delicate question. How do you explain that sometimes men are heterosexual at the beginning and they become gay during their life? Doesn't happen the opposite with women when they turn to be homosexual? And it didn't make, I mean, the question didn't make sense. And Martina, as soon as she heard it coming, the eye rolling was meant to be seen in the back row yeah and and her answer was and i'll just read it uh you don't turn do you turn straight no you don't you don't turn gay no i think you don't know enough about the issue when you frame a question like that you don't just turn you either are or not and that's like the last that's the end of the press conference but i just remember sitting and like just squirming in my chair because the question was coming out very slowly and haltingly and and kind of like and she was down there getting annoyed by it i think that version of it might even be paraphrased and there was more to it than that there was more to it it was longer than that and it was much more offensive honestly um than that but um yeah that was probably like the like kind of the most awkward i've ever been in a press conference um and a question that honestly if you're going to ask that you really got to sit at your desk and make sure that you've crafted it if you're going to ask it at all i mean it shouldn't be asked oh if you're going to ask it you better frame it correctly i remember my most awkward moment now actually um it was not a transcript one so i don't have it up but it was during washington last year and it was a sloan stevens press conference oh my gosh i remember this and sloan it was there's like two chairs on the podium like for doubles team they're sort of you know it's one of those tournaments where they have like living room chairs kind of you know not like Podium, not like a table podium, except just like a chair and then a plant. Person sits in and holds the microphone themselves. Um, so it's one of those. And for some reason, this other reporter like sat in the other chair up there on the stage with her, like he was hosting a talk show or something. And he did. He asked like the first question, and then like other people jumped in because obviously it's a press conference, not a one-on-one. Um, and then he asked this long question about this study that came out about how I'm probably getting this not exactly right, but like something about how African-Americans don't use their brains as much when they're using sports. And there was some study of the Williams sisters or something about brain usage by African-Americans. And Sloan was just up there looking like, what on earth is going up there? Because she's 19 years old, was fairly new to the top 100 in the last few months, doesn't have a whole lot of press experience, was getting this really bizarre question. WTA rep who was there was not one of their ones who does a lot of American tournaments because it was the Olympics was going on. A lot of things were happening that week. And she wasn't offering any help. So Sloan was just sort of looking at me yeah. like, what do I do? And it was it was weird. Yeah. That was bad. Basically, yeah. Race questions, not great. Let's not go there unless you're you really can articulate it with some sort of it's just like a crazy like race conspiracy theory question too yeah it was like some i remember reading about it i don't know who wrote it up but i just remember maybe some maybe a I blogger was about there. It at the time i was like that was i have yeah really then, but it was strange and like i don't do this often but i like told her agent you know about that because i'm sure she was gonna he was gonna hear about it because i saw him like 
a few minutes later watching a match. Yeah, that was... And then he, like, came to watch the next press conference, the agent, just to, like, make sure yeah. that guy wasn't doing that again. He wasn't really around the rest of the week, but it was bizarre. Yeah, I mean, I think that generally, I mean, the race questions are always brutal. I mean, I remember Lee Na when she had her triumphant runs both in, in um, 2011, got all these and obviously maybe i'm more sensitive to it because i'm asian i'm asian american i'm not like chinese like i'm not like asian Uh but like just having like it's just a weird optic of like this chinese girl being asked these questions by like old white men like you're hilarious and chinese people aren't funny like how do you explain that like you know, like, as though they're complimenting her without really realizing they've just completely insulted, like, a billions billion of people. people. Yeah. yeah, like, I'm, like, and I'm, like, sitting there and I just remember, like, staring at this, like, reporter and just being, like, what the hell are you, like, do you even hear what you just said? And I, and, and there are those moments where you, you know, like, what they're getting at, but the way that it was framed was so inappropriate. Like, if you want to do the whole, like, I don't know, not typically Chinese, which is still a totally offensive premise as though there's like a typical Chinese in a country like that's that many people but like or like you break a stereotype or something then maybe but again like think about how you frame a question agreed brutal so hopefully there will not be as many of those in the future although those are you know memorable learning experience (laughs) things that if all questions were perfect it would be a fairly dull place to be and to be fair sometimes those questions get great answers they do they do so you know not though not in the ones not in these particular instances that we're no about, but sometimes so now we're gonna do our little rant segment once again bring that back Cor- i feel like it should be rants and raves ben rants and raves we're constantly because rants always yeah it always implies negative but okay. i think sometimes we're positive sure. positively ranting so rants and raves courtney i think you have a rave you just got back from the lovely state of oregon where you were in portland which I know is a very important place to you spiritually. It is. Can you talk about a little bit about your trip and about the sporting event you attended while you were there? I know you're one talking about. Absolutely. Um, yes, I actually took a vacation for five days up to Portland, Oregon, um, which is like basically if I – I've always said like if I couldn't live in San Francisco, which I love, um, if I can't live in the San Francisco Bay Area – I would live in Portland and it domestically. Outside of that, I would say if I couldn't live in the, in America, I guess I'd say Melbourne. I'd like to live in Melbourne. That seems fun. I'd be so poor in Melbourne. My God. I'd be so poor. Oh my gosh. I'd be poor and super sober because you can afford to buy alcohol. That's not the Courtney I want to know. <laughs> That's not the Courtney I want to be. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I was up in Portland and um, just randomly ended up. Uh, just because we were in the hotel room and we saw an advertisement um, that the Portland Thorns, Portland Thorns FC, um, which is the Portland women's soccer team that is one of the one of the eight teams of this newly formed National Women's Soccer League. The third attempt at a women's soccer league. <sighs> the third attempt. Like a few years. Exactly. Before, you, before playing... you get further on the positive side of this, sure. may I just say that I was, when you added the FC part, my eyes were rolling. Just no, own, I can't own, say it. Own yourself, American sports. You are not an FC. You are a Portland I totally agree with you. I 100% agree with you. I cannot stand – I don't say it. Like I think that if anybody would go through my tweets over the weekend when I was at the game, I never said Portland Thorns FC. I was just like a Thorns game. Nor should it. Or like whatever. It's just – it's weird and awkward and it doesn't work. It's so pretentious. It's so, so pretentious. To give both the nickname and then the FC. Right. No. 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 Because it's not like European soccer clubs have like a mascot name. 
Almost as never. part of their team name, yeah. right? I mean, they have mascots, but they're like kind of informal. But anyways, so I went and I didn't really know what to expect. I was really kind of like, especially I'm a big women's soccer fan and Alex Morgan plays for the Thorns. So Bay Area represent Cowgirl, as well as Christine Sinclair, who's like the best player out of Canada, who I know because she played, not know personally, but so yeah, so I didn't really know what to expect and showed up to Jeldwen Field, which is like a horrible name for a field. It kept making me think of like a Jedi Knight um, or like I was on like... It was like the fourth moon off of the planet Tatooine. So basically Star Wars. I get that. Yep. But yeah, so we show up. It's at two o'clock in the afternoon on last Sunday. And we roll up in the cab and we get out. And there are people everywhere. The stadium is completely jam-packed. It turns out there was like 16,500 people that were at this game, this women's soccer game. And not only that, but what was so incredible was Portland, I guess, has this very strong kind of soccer spirit within the city. So the Portland Timbers, which are the MLS team, get like really great fan support. But they've kind of really adopted like a lot of the European style traditions. They have like a songbook. They have a songbook. They cheer nonstop throughout the game. There's drumming. There's um, just call and response. I mean, it was just really, really fun. It was the most fun I've had at a a sporting event in a while. And just really one of the things that I was telling Ben um, before we got on the podcast that really made this event stand out to me was I go to a lot of, I've always gone to a lot of women's sporting events. Even when I was in high school, I was watching a lot of um, NCAA sports and stuff because as a female athlete, college teams are your pro teams right? Like Mm -hmm. there generally aren't professional women's leagues other than like the WTA, the LPGA, the WNBA, and hopefully women's soccer. So those were like my idols growing up. And I've, but when you go to a lot of women's sports, the conversation that you hear around you are, first of all, you think that when you show up, it's just going to be like, then the WNBA kind of has this stigma of just like a lot of just like lesbians. Lesbians everywhere. everywhere. Lesbians everywhere, which is great. I mean, that's like a really big reason why the WNBA is a marginal success because they have very... Lesbians are keeping that thing afloat. For sure. So I kind of thought that that was going to be that. And then the other thing is that you become very used to the, the crowds being generally mostly women regardless of sexual orientation or else like dads with their daughters dads and daughters the other big WNBA thing, dads yeah. and daughters that's really huge or there are guys but somehow i don't know they're there but they're kind of the way they're talking about the action it's not they're not buying into it they're not really buying into it exactly they're, they're being a bit patronizing a bit condescending like whatever so it was amazing about going to the thorns game was that there were so many dudes. Like, I'm not saying, like, just, like, dads and daughters. I mean, there was a good amount of that. And there was, like, families and stuff. And there were a lot of lesbians, like, (laughs) and stuff like that. And that's cool also. But there were just tons of dudes. Like, this guy in front of me was decked out in, like, his full Portland Timbers kit. Like, he had, like, a... I don't know why he was wearing a kilt, but he was in a kilt. Yes, he's in Portland, Courtney. That's why he's wearing a kilt. I guess so. No, it was like this, like kind of dorky. It was like this group of like five dorky middle-aged Asian men <laughs> who were like geeking out about soccer, regardless of what was like the gender of the people on the field. They were just like, "Oh no, they got to push up the left flank." I mean, it was so cool because you don't necessarily hear this with women's tennis either. That men, like traditional sports fan men, talk about the action as though it's gender neutral. That they're just watching the sport. It's not as X's and O's. A lot of right. Time. So there was a lot of that. So it was just like, it was super, super cool. If you are in Portland visiting or if you live in Portland, highly recommend that you support the team um, and go to a game. Cities, I mean, yes. give it a shot because this thing needs your help. I, I will not be going because I am a self- I do not like soccer. 
I'm all for women's sports, but I don't watch men's soccer. I've never been to an MLS game either, and there's been a team in D.C. well over 15 years now. D.C. United. D.C. United, yeah. She pretty much started the stateside Europeanization of the name, so. It did. Thanks, thanks for that, D.C. United. Yeah, no, soccer's, yeah, soccer's not for me, but I think, obviously, I root for support of women's sports, obviously. So if this thing does well, it's good for the sports landscape in the country and good for athletes. Although, you know, maybe I should be thinking that if there's a viable pro soccer league for women that won't be as many pro tennis players people going possibly that, so possibly but for all i mean for the amount of like girls who play grow up playing soccer oh i know yeah i know it's it's, it's, it's that not having a there should be there's just so many people who do it as a hobby or as a thing to do in high school and then mm-hmm. lesser in college um from such a young age in this country with all the youth soccer programs that they're probably there should be a, a league at the top and just like there was with took a long time for mls even to get started i mean there was so much right youth soccer participation in the u.s before uh mls even got its act together so right yeah so it's uh yeah there's eight teams they're kind of in random places like there's no team in california so the portland thorns are effectively effectively my clubs it's just because they're closest to me yeah like hope solo and megan rapino play for seattle and abby wambach i think plays for new york or some northeastern team or dc or something but you know all the national team members are are all over the place and you know i don't think that you're going to get the same i don't want to like set expectations too high for non-portland clubs because apparently like the portland game that i was at which was portland against seattle outdrew the 16,000 was more than the combined attendance of all the other games that weekend. Mm. So a lot of the other teams are playing at much smaller venues that are like closer to like 5,000 capacity. It's just Portland yeah. can do this because it has this instilled ethos and, and love of soccer. But I will say this, that's really cool about the Portland Thorns. So the mascot, because Portland is the city of roses. Yeah. So hence the thorns. But the mascot is Rosie the Riveter. <sighs> Like, seriously, she's dressed like Rosie the Riveter and like she like jumps up and down, like helps lead lead all the songs. Is this like is this like a foam mascot or is it like a uh, a person, a person dressed in like a blue, you know, workers jumper and like has the red bandana tied in her hair and her and this other guy who basically just looks like any dude in Portland. He's like bearded with a trucker hat wearing like a T-shirt are like the cheerleaders trying to get like all the cheers going. But yeah, but the official mascot is Rosie the Riveter and the fans like the hardcore dedicated Thorns fans are called Rose City Riveters. They're actually on Twitter at Rose City Riveters. Wow. But I, I don't know. It's I a good foundation, all... right? Because this is like their opening weekend or close to it, right? For sure. And it, it was just great. And like after the, after the game, like the line to the, um, there was an actual line to get into the merch store to buy merch and they sold out of almost everything. But like it was a line where like a security guard had to like let you in when people left out like left like it was so packed. They have a bouncer. That's important. yeah. I mean they were making money hand over fist. I mean it's it's incredible. I think it's awesome. I hope that the women's soccer league finally figures out a way to survive, and I think that this time is the right way, which is that it's supported by the the U.S. Soccer Federation, which is not what they were doing before. They were trying to do it all private, and I think that having the federation M- as a baseline and, is huge. And MLS is a lot more established now and i think that using the same stadium they're doing a bit of the wnba model i mean the original wnba teams i think were all in nba stadiums and all sort of derivative off of um nba NBA. mascots and stuff i mean it'd be like you know the wizards and dc and the mystics and then the the rockets and the mercury in houston or whatever and it was just all this sort of junior sort of team stuff which i think sometimes maybe you know people might like to be more of a standalone thing but you do need that stair step that sort of crutch sometimes in order to get your footing it's, 
the last point that I will make on it's just coming off of your point is that it's hard in soccer though because soccer fans like male soccer like soccer fans of like the MLS or European leagues or whatever tend to be much more misogynistic when it comes to women's sports that's just how it is just kind of culturally within soccer so it is difficult to kind of piggyback yeah so it's been difficult to find the cities where you can pair up like Portland is obviously a very liberal very progressive city so like the guys actually take great pride like the Timbers fans seem to like take great pride in being Thorns fans like or whatever but like you couldn't have an LA team even though the LA Galaxy is like really generally pretty popular but like anytime they've tried to put like a women's team to piggyback off of that it's failed miserably because a lot of Latino fans don't want to watch women play soccer that's just the fact, at least as like uh, people within like the soccer, women's soccer kind of leagues have told me in the past. So that becomes a bit difficult. So hopefully it survives. Hopefully it works. But I think they've 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 uh, identified the right cities. They'll do better this time. I mean, it might not be, you know, next biggest thing in the world, but there's pretty much a lot of room to go only up after the last two attempts. Yeah, I mean, the worst worst comes to worst, it fails again. Yeah. And whatever my rant rave thing is just a bit more more reason i was just came back today from covering a hockey game between the washington capitals and winnipeg jets i did not see maria karolenko there in attendance even (laughs) though her boyfriend plays for the caps alex oveshkin but i had not done hockey press in like a little over a year or so and i was just really struck i've done both a fair amount but tennis obviously a lot more recently and i was just really struck by how glad I am that I am not a hockey beat writer um, when I was there. And obviously there's a lot of people who I like who do that. Um, There's a bunch of really good hockey bloggers and stuff. But the amount of paint by numbersing that goes into writing Mm. articles and asking questions and was sort of really discouraging and stunting to me. I mean, people people ask questions that are just like, I'm going to make a statement and you're going to agree with it and just give me my quote. And it's just like... Talk about how great it was that this guy chipped in, even though he's a third liner, and he really came through in a big game for you guys. That's a question. Right. And the, whoever the player or the coach is like, yeah, you know, it was big for him to come through and get that goal. That was a big boost for us from guys that are contributing. Hear that question in different forms, like five different people, five different people get the same answers every time. And it's just like, ugh, what's the point? And then I had questions, which were cause the story I'm doing, which I will not give away. So, you know. <laughs> No spoilers here. I asked the question that was a little more outside the box because that's how I write for tennis too. I mean, I write stories that are not, you know, gamers or results stories or hopefully not typical narrative stories all the time. And players, some were fine on it, but others were just like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Like, why aren't you asking me about, you know, the game and how we all worked hard or something? And I had (laughs) Ovechkin actually, which is like, he looked at me and was like, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. And then stopped. That was the end. Tremendous. I mean, don't you think that, like, I mean, can't we just say that, for the most part, tennis players, much more articulate and thoughtful than, what do you think? Well, I was thinking about it as I was driving home, and I thought that part of it is is that, that, you know, tennis is more introspective, and you don't have to necessarily worry about offending people or being out of lockstep as much in a team sport. If you're on a team sport, you don't want somebody who's out there running their mouth on the team, who's, you know, not sticking to the script. That's a problem on team sports, especially with how they're coached. And, you know, men's team sports, especially a, you know, good old Canadian boy sport like hockey where it's physical and you want people just, you know, really not rocking the boat. And I think also a lot of it with tennis is that tennis writing is shaped by people who self-select to be tennis writers. I mean, I don't Mm. think that there's people, I don't know if there's like a Steve Tigner 
equivalent in hockey. I don't know if it allowed, or at least who's you know doing covering games in person and doing that. Not that Steve right. is in there in the scrums doing that. And that's the other thing with element of the press is that like you're put in these. You don't. It's not like a podium situation. You go up to people in the locker room. They do them sort of one by one or two at a time. And so it's like literally like thirty five people. Literally like that's how many people it is. All trying to reach or a quarter towards someone's face. And it's just this right. immense cluster of humanity asking these inane questions. And it's just not what tennis is where, you know, you sort of get the gamers out of the way and then you're sitting in a room in chairs. It's well lit and not, you know, people walking around in their underwear. And it's sort of more conversational and you do the gamer stuff. And then you have time to sort of, you know, talk about important topics or, you know, what else is going on in the game or in the world or so on. And hockey doesn't doesn't allow for that. So I just think, it, I think that you know, what I was saying about the self-selection writers, I think people pick tennis and tennis is covered in that way because of the people who choose to cover it because that's the sort of thing that keeps them intellectually stimulated and i was just thinking i've done a lot of hockey in the past but i've done it from sort of different angles um before more of a blogging detached side of it but doing it day to day as a b writer i would find extremely challenging in a way that might seem you know like ultimately unfulfilling gotcha so that's, that's my thought on that solid look at us like talking about other sports i know like, right we, we like had a little foray into other sports this weekend we did that last week or too with week. the golf i mean we're like that's true we're kind of i think you know it's good to mix it up a little bit we need to not obviously tennis is still our home and if you're tuning out because we're not talking about tennis i'm sorry let me say i'll say something about marina prandi next time i promise <laughs> i know that's what you guys come here for exactly um, i think she lost in fed cup over the weekend incidentally that yeah, really rainy tie to Ashley Barty, I think, maybe. Uh-huh. Or did Barty beat Vogler? No, Barty beat Vogler. It's a big upset. Good on Ash. We like to Barty all the time. Barty all the time. Barty Ruck is in the house tonight. <laughs> By the way, while we're talking about this, Courtney, we were, we were doing uh-huh. the um, Ashley Barty cheers. Yes. When we were watching Laura Robson's first round match in Charleston, the player she was playing against, Estrella Cabeza Candela. Yes. We... <laughs> <laughs> we... Sorry. <laughs> we don't have to do this if you don't want. But well, let's do it. we do it. were talking about all the possible cheers that come up for her because her name is Estrella Cabeza Candela, which is three very basic Spanish 101 words that mean star head candle. So we were thinking that people, you know, really should embrace her as a cult hero, you know, and go to her matches and cheer for star head candle. Yes. And if didn't want to cheer for star head, and this goes towards my whole Portland Thorns rant about sing-songy and embracing kind of your specific way to cheer for a player or team starhead candle is just the gift that keeps on giving yeah so there's a few different versions of this you come up with just basic cheers starhead candle can work for anything so we just do one that's like starhead candle yep and then that works and then there's oh we have to do the slow one the slow clap one it's like it's like star Stop. head and then when i say starhead you say candle starhead candle starhead candle see there's so much there so, so that's much. what we're saying get out there people rock the vote because honestly if starhead and this is kind of the thing that you know world team tennis has that i think people like about it is you know there's energy of those traditional sports those team sports brought to these people who don't get it much in their lives and if you did that maybe with not someone's translated and with someone's real name 
I mean, not that Starhead Candle wouldn't appreciate it, because she better appreciate it. But do that for somebody and go out there and make someone stay next time you're at a tournament. Just Seriously. just have fun with it. I know, especially like when you're on like the outer courts at like the US Open or the Aussie Open. Like find a friend, split up, stand on opposite sides of the court and do some call and response. It'd be great. I mean, seriously. You'll get, you some, do you'll get some glares. But you just you'll get some glares. People, but people will enjoy it. Exactly. Like we were talking we've talked to players who say that like they love hearing the cheers. Yeah. They love it. So what's you know, like like Starhead Candle is a four beat cheer. So any player that has a four beat name, you can do it with. Anybody. Anybody. Anyone. Venus Williams. When I say Venus, you say Williams, Venus. Williams. <laughs> Venus. Not as funny as Starhead Candle, but it's not as funny, but it works. <laughs> it does work. So with that, we'll we'll leave the a little assignment, I guess. If anyone has cheers they want to come up with for any player um yeah. submit them to us on our facebook page um and we will breed the best ones on our next show and also while we're giving programming notes obviously you can like us on facebook if you haven't already we are at facebook.com slash ncr podcast um, we're also on itunes if you like us on itunes you can leave us a review we'd appreciate that assuming you like us um, if you don't find us your opinion but but your reviews help our podcast get discovered yeah so. it does like the more reviews we get the higher in search results we come so we're you know obviously happy we have a very seems like a very um devoted following which we like but we obviously want everyone to you know experience the wonder that it's us as many people as possible I and mean, if you have friends you know tell them about the show too if you have tennis people yeah and just generally just we want to encourage more back and forth. If you listen to the show, when you listen to the show, um, if you have reactions, questions, comments, leave it for us on Twitter or Facebook, and we'll do our best to try to answer those as directly and quickly as possible. Word up. Yeah, that's about it. Anything else, Courtney, for this week's show? No, I think we can we can successfully put a bird on it. Uh, let's put a bird on it. When I say starhead, you say candle. Starhead. Candle. Bye, guys. Lates. Lates.